This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life. And the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day. And I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition, or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to Military Veteran Dad. This is episode 138. And today we're going to dive into a question outside of fatherhood, but still one of those that we still get stuck on no matter where we're at in our transition. And that is, we don't know what we don't know. What I want to ask you is, what is that one thing that we don't know? But if we did, it would change everything. Chris Voss, in his book called Never Split the Difference, calls this the black swan. What is that black swan that once you know black swans exist, you can work with it. But if you don't know, well, then you don't know. And as veterans, we can often fall into the gap of not knowing the right path or resources to help you through our transition. Today, we are talking with Dr. Mike Haney. Dr. Mike Haney is Syracuse University's Vice Chancellor for Strategic Initiatives and Innovation. In 2011, Haney founded Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families, IVMF, the nation's nation's first interdisciplinary institute created to inform and advance the policy, economic, and wellness concerned of the Americans, veterans, and families. Today, IVMF programs serve over 25,000 veterans annually. That number blew my mind. And the Institute is widely acknowledged as the nation's leading academic voice related to issues impacting veterans and military-connected families. In 2013, Dr. Haney's efforts on behalf of veterans were the subject of a feature story by CBS News Magazine's 60 Minutes titled, Succeeding as Veterans. The work that Dr. Mike Haney is doing with Syracuse University, the idea of building this is something we dive into because hearing how this organization works is almost like, how did one man be able to dream this up and have the courage to go do it against all odds? Because there are so many different red tapes and roadblocks that we often run into. Dr. Mike Haney ran through them, and I'll save the answer for how he did that for the episode. But let's get started because this episode is too good to wait. And if you want my big takeaway, hang on to the other side. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me, Ben. And I already messed up because we already briefed your name is Mike, not Michael. So I apologize. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Again, thank you for having me, Ben. Well, this is a special episode because this is one of those things where I'm always blown away because what you do is something that's been going on for 10 years. You're celebrating the 10th anniversary of this place at Syracuse University that I never knew. And it kind of speaks to the problem that we were chatting about before coming, jumping on here and hitting record, that veterans don't know what we don't know. And you've this facility where you work has been out there for 10 years, 
And most people probably don't yet know, even though it's a national institute for veteran resources that is kind of like this, when you look at the building, it's like this amazing place where all of these resources can come together and help solve the problems. But yet again, a lot of people don't know what we don't know. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about the resource center that you lead and how that came about. Sure. Happy to. So, you know, as, as we talked about before uh, we started, I'm a, I'm a veteran myself. I got out in 2006. I, I had the good fortune that when I transitioned, um, you know, I, I trans, I was fortunate the air force sent me off to school while I was serving on active duty, uh, you know, so I could go teach at the air force Academy and I fell in love with teaching being around students. So I, I got out in 06 and, and came to Syracuse university as a professor but um, was really struck by the fact that higher education as a community was largely disengaged in the social, economic, wellness issues impacting the nation's veterans and their families. Um, and, you know, as an entrepreneurship guy, I decided I could do something about it by, you know, proposing the creation of an academic institute at, at the university that would focus nationally on serving and supporting and empowering the, the veteran and military connected community. So, we created this institute in, in 2010, the Institute for Veterans and Military Families, with the idea that we were going to do many of those things that academic institutes do, that the nerdy stuff, research, policy, advocacy, but that we would also do direct service delivery to veterans and military-connected families, you know, um, career transition programs, skills training, business ownership training programs, and and you know, ten years in, we 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 do that now at a very large scale. So, you know, this this past year alone, about twenty two to twenty four thousand transitioning service members, veterans, military spouses, went through programs that we run in the institute, designed to help them navigate that transition to civilian life, whether it's to higher education, a, a, a job, um, business ownership, and and uh, you know, it's it's really been it's really been quite a journey. I want to go back to a moment. We, I, I warned you before we hit record of how my interview style is. I noticed an Irish pennant that I want to go back and pull because it's not something that every person wakes up with. And I want to understand how you overcame it. Way back in the beginning, you saw a gap. You saw an idea and you had the courage to do it. And it actually worked. So I'm wondering how did that work out in your mind? How did that work out in real life? And what was like your life like back then that allowed you to believe in something that was, I mean, the idea of what you're working in right now is probably almost unimaginable that you had this idea and sparked it and was able to achieve it because that's not the average person. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, so the, the question you ask is actually a pretty complex one in the context of, you know, my own sort of reflections, but you know, I described my transition as some, you know, I got out, I had, I had everything lined up for me. You know, the, the military had, you know, paid for me to go earn a PhD. I was, I was getting out and transitioning to a job at a nationally known university, et cetera. I, I have to tell you, um, three weeks here, I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life. Um, I didn't realize that even for, even with everything sort of set up, um, um, that I would be lost. I, you know, I, I, I realized in retrospect, I was sort of grieving for the meaning and the purpose that I found through military service. I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't able to find it in the context of now my new civilian job. I still love teaching, et cetera, but um, something was missing. And it was, 
it was actually I got started doing this work um, when I I became aware of of the high rate of disability uh, among service members who were transitioning out at that time. And I, you know, I asked myself the question, what can I do about it? And here I was a vet and an entrepreneurship professor. And I said, well, how about we create a program to bring traumatically wounded um, um, service members, veterans to the university um, and put them through a program to become small business owners? Uh, you know, the idea that in the face of disability challenges, maybe, you know, there are barriers to traditional employment, but but through business ownership, people can craft a vocation for themselves that that allows them to overcome so the, some of those barriers. So my point is, this didn't start with the big vision, you know, to to create what exists today. It started with an opportunity I saw to make a small difference in the lives of a, of, of you know a, a small number of, of veterans. Um, but what happened as a consequence of that is, you know, that 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 initial program, which we still run today, by the way, um, had an impact beyond. What any of us anticipated, you know, we 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 ran the program for the first time. You know, we brought all the twenty veterans, you know, to the to this university. Uh, but from that, we had other universities come to us: um, Texas A and M, and UCLA, and Florida State, and and then later LSU. They all saw what we did and say and said, "Can we be part of this too?" So we expanded that program. Then we created another program for women veterans, and then you know, and it was at this point where the gap that you described became really apparent because you, you have, you have all this intellectual capital that resides in higher education, not focused at all in any meaningful way on um, the, the nation's veteran and military connected community. And that, that for me was the opportunity recognition moment. You know, you ask um, how it is that I that sort of, you know, in my own mind said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Candidly, I think the thing that that served me well is I just didn't know any better. Uh, I, I, and honestly, I was naive. I didn't know, you know, higher education was new to me. You know, the the sort of norms and expectations of a of a tenure track professor. You know, what I'm supposed to be doing. What I'm and you know, I just said, hey, this makes sense. Why don't we do this? I didn't know that it wasn't I wasn't supposed to do those things. Um, you just went I, military on it and said, I'm just going to take did. it over. Oh, and like, oh, I, look, I, I there's did. a process. You apply it and fact, you get the I result. I'm talking to a Marine. I have to tell you, um, as, as my own little thread, I'll pull. Um, you know, I've been training veterans to be business owners for 15 years. My biggest knock it out of the park success stories, over thousands of, of, of veterans who have gone through our business ownership programs, are always young enlisted Marines. And I think it's for the same reason that I just described to you. They just don't, you, you don't know any better, right? They, you know, be, you benefit from not knowing that no one has an expectation that you can do this. Um, but if you think about the life of a, of a young enlisted Marine um, in the military, it's always about achieving something in the face of uh, inherently constrained resources. You never have everything that you possibly need to do the job, accomplish the mission. Our existence in the DOD proves that on a weekly yeah. basis. <laughs> but you figure out how to get it done. And I, I think that's sort of also, the, you know, the story of, of creating this institute and, and the programs that, that we now run all over the country is um, we didn't know we weren't supposed to be able to do it. So we just did it. I love that story because I bet there's another thread behind it that 
you also had this belief and, and courage that in some ways probably came from your dad. Like there was a moment that you believed in yourself enough that you could go out into the world and change it. And that fire and furnace can be applied in so many different ways. And in, in many cases, like I didn't have that feeling of like, you can go out in the world and do anything you want. I was always told like, get a job, stick, keep your head down, get a pension, get a retirement and just do your 30. And that almost forced me to pull back more. Like, who am I to do this? Because I'm told to keep my head down. And even in boot camp, I was the guy, my K is in the middle of the alphabet. So I was in the back of the squad bay. Like <laughs> it was very easy for me not to be seen. And that kind of became this thing that I had to overcome my own life and my transition is how do I step into not just worry about being seen, but not really care, like step into it with the ignorance of this is something I want to do and I'm going to do it and letting go of what other expectations or opinions people might have if I believe in what I'm doing. Yeah. And, and at first, you know, the situation you described, I have to tell you, at first um, was a challenge for me because once I learned I wasn't supposed to be doing these things, I also had to learn um, and remind myself that I shouldn't care. Um, you know, and that, and that, that wasn't something that just, you know, came naturally to me because I think one of the things you also learn from the military is, is, you know, um, sort of what the norm and expectation should be. And, you know, we're, we're trained in the military to, um, to not stand out. You know, one, one of the things we do a lot of work here at the Institute preparing, um, transitioning service members, veterans, you know, to go out and, and, and interview and get jobs and all. And when we, we talk to our corporate partners, one of the things that, um, you know, I remember very specifically a, a conversation with a senior HR leader at, at one of the, the big financial services firms who had a program, you know, they wanted to hire veterans. And, you know, after several months of, of, of recruiting and interviewing and, you know, I, I had this conversation with this, this HR leader who basically said, Mike, the biggest challenge when we interview veterans is to is getting them to talk about something other than the team, you know, because we want to know as as a hiring manager what you as an individual will bring to our organization. And you know, veterans I think are are very comfortable talking about accomplishments that 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 we made possible, that the team made happen, that you know, but um, much less so about the I, you know, talking about me, talking about I and. Um, you know, I, I think at some point, um, you know, we have to move beyond that as, as a, as, as a community, but, you know, to, to your question, that was hard for me to do too. Um, you know, I wanted all of these things to happen. I also wanted very much to remain in the background, um, you know, to pull some strings and, and make this all to come together. And, you know, ultimately I had someone explain to me that, you know, within my world, within higher education, um, standing in the background isn't very useful um, because if you want to engage this community um, in your cause and, and my cause, if you will, um, was veterans, military connected families, they also needed to see somebody out in front. Um, and, you know, whether, so whether I wanted to or not um, in many ways, I became that, 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 that person pulling others along from the front. So knowing the problem in your own life, I'm sure this was something you had to incorporate in the programs to overcome at a more of a mass scale. What is something that the Institute does to incorporate that belief system or changing the belief systems in the programs that you guys offer? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things that we had to, you hit on something else again before um, before we started, you know, talking about um, veterans don't know what they don't know. They don't know what's out there. That's a real problem in this country. You know, the, the reality is before 9-11, there were maybe 10,000 veteran serving organizations, nonprofits, et cetera, in, all, in the United States. And within a few years after 9-11, that number grew to close to 50,000 um, veteran serving organizations. And on one hand, that's a great thing, but the challenge is that landscape, you know, um, you know, we, we had a, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs who, who coined the term that, that really became to describe this, this universe of veteran serving organizations, called it the sea of goodwill. Um, navigating that sea of goodwill for a, a veteran is sometimes a challenge because there's so much out there. And a big part of what we have taken on um, is not is not just building more programs, et cetera, but also helping service members, veterans navigate the existing um, community of, of veteran serving organizations such that you know, we help them get to an organization that can serve the need, solve a problem. You know, we, we do this, one of our programs is called America Serves. So um, America Serves is a community-based initiative that we run where we work in um, communities around the United States. I think right now we're in 16 or 17, you know, Pittsburgh, Raleigh, Dallas, San Antonio, New York City, Seattle, where we go in and help those communities engage the resources that are already there, bring the nonprofit organizations together with the public service organizations and create a coordinated care model of, of service delivery in those communities so that there's one door for a veteran or a service member or a military family member to enter to access then this, this, this big portfolio, if you will, of, of supportive services and resources in the community. And that that's been a game changer for us because it it really, um, you know, one of the things that tr is is true um, is asking for help for veterans sometimes is a challenge, and then if you ask for help, you finally get to the point where you ask for help once, and 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 that organization that you go to, that entity, um, says, well, you don't qualify, can't help you. That's the last time you're ever going to ask for help, and. You know what? What these community, what this community program that we do runs is is almost guarantees that you'll never end up in an organization that can't help you because you're being navigated there. You're be by somebody who knows what this organization can do, can't do. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think you know it's one of the more um, innovative things that I that I think we're doing around the country right now. I'm glad you went there because I often describe that veterans suffer from the largest PR crisis in the history of public relations because of what you just said and. It's even worse because if I were, and I've been in this veteran space now for three years and every day, even a couple counties over, I will find someone that I never knew. And I could Google year after year and never actually find people right in my backyard that could potentially help me. And it's, we, we can Google like information, what we need to know, but we can't Google who we need to know. And there are so many, and oftentimes, let alone being connected to the VA, that's that's one component. Like if the VA can't send you a flyer about something, then you're also in a dark. But then when you're trying to find someone, there is almost just like a sea of like what you said, goodwill and trying to connect. And I also kind of remind reminds me of when I was find, trying to find a realtor is the realtor company that I went with. They had me call someone and they asked me what I was looking for. 
And they also asked the qualities of the person I was looking to, to go with. And then they recommended a realtor that I reach out and poof, right on the head. We clicked. She's helped sell our home, helped buy her home. And it was that person that kind of acts as that mediator to make sure that you get in the right direction. And it, that often doesn't come with the VA because the VA is trying to do it on more of a mass scale. But adding the human touch into that process, I could easily see how that could be a game changer to connect these veteran resources. Because every time a veteran says, oh, I want to start something, I immediately almost cringe because I know, yes, it's good that you want to start something. It's really exciting that you want to start something. But what we don't need is another nonprofit. We need to be able to leverage what we already have. And how do we get those resources already doing things that they're good at doing versus one more person trying to solve yeah. the problem? A Amen. Uh, you know, what you just said, that is my soapbox as well. You know, we, we've overbuilt, if you will, in the veteran space. Um, and, you know, more than that, we've also under leveraged all the resources. We, we, we tend to think that we need a veteran specific solution for everything. And in many communities, there are, um, there are services, supportive resources that are available to all members of those communities that, that simply need to become culturally competent related to veterans. And, you know, once, once those doors are open, um, you know, the, the portfolio of resources available to veterans in a given community, you know, town, city, village, whatever it is, is actually pretty expansive. You know, so we don't need to build more um, in most cases. I mean, there are some, you know, rural, veterans that live in very rural communities, for example, you know, might be an exception to what I just described. Um, but the reality is the infrastructure is out there. We just we need to find a better way to leverage it and access it. If I worked for the IRS, I've always envisioned that even just adding a V to every 501c that's veteran focused allows someone to download an Excel spreadsheet of all the 501c's that are veteran tied, that at least you could create like some type of data map that shows you all the little dots across the United States of where they are. And even being able to use something like that within like a website, like something as simple as just giving us a label to help us like identify where we are. Because in the CF501C3, there's thousands of us. So to, to identify, even at the government level, to give us some extra edge so we can find ourselves, that in itself, we like what you're talking about, trying to find yeah, that information. I'm, I'm learning a trick from you, though. So I, I can keep pulling on these threads. You, you, just, you just threw another thread out there for me to- I'm sorry, know. I probably cost you a week's worth of work. <laughs> no, but, but you know what, what's interesting about what you just said is that's only half the battle. Because the other question- that I think we need to, we need as a as a community, we need to focus on more is um, just because they're out there doesn't mean they're any good at what they do. And, and Ooh, that's, yeah, that's another good one. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's the other thing, um, you know. So that that's something else that we work on here at the institute. Matter of fact, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story about how we got started doing that work. Um, when when President Bush stood up his his institute and library down down in Dallas. Um, he asked us to be part of the team sort of figuring out the strategy for how he would do work to support the post 9-11 veteran community. And I went down there early on before the Institute was even opened and, and sat down with him and, and some other folks. And we're talking about the sea of goodwill. And, you know, I remember very, very vividly, even though it's been now, you know, uh, five, six years, you know, he turned to me and said, but Mike, there are all these veteran organizations out there. How do we know if any of them are any good. And, you know, that started us on a journey, that question of, of on the, the research side of what we do, building um, the capability to go out and look at veteran organizations 
and and assess the impact that they have. Um, not in a, not in a way where you know we're we're trying to say good, bad, etc., but um, to help those organizations understand if what they do is actually changing the trajectory of somebody's life, or if instead and 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 if it's not how they may get there, right? You know, the because they don't know what they don't know, and there's they don't know what trying, they get. Yeah, yeah they the don't know what they don't of, know either, and. They're just a goodwill as well, and they're just trying. And but trying isn't always good enough, and your goodwill itself isn't always good enough if you don't go in with the right minds. I mean, non nonprofits can either be a curse or a blessing, and it's very quickly to be a curse. And you're trying to have all these positive changes, but then it quickly becomes like you spend all your time focused on raising money versus actually helping people. Yeah, no, I I agree, and and you know even though there is all this goodwill out there you know we we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day all these nonprofits are are funded by a limited pie of resources you know um, americans do care about veteran issues etc but but i will tell you at the same time by the data you know last year american philanthropy more of the, more of their um, giving from americans was directed to um, nonprofit dog shelters than it was to veteran serving organizations, you know. So the reality is, um, we need to put the resources that we have in the nonprofit community to their first best use, serving the needs of veterans and their families in a way that will have an enduring impact, you know. And and you know, I think one of the things that um, we all need to be very aware of is, at the end of the day, um, there there is there is sort of this. Um, you know, family, career, financial, um, health and well-being, you know, that that little group of, of issues, if you will, are, you know, decades of research suggests that if you get those things right, the other things sort of fall into place. Um, that's where we should be focused, our limited resources, in my in my view. And I love what we started this conversation on is entrepreneurship. And it's one of the things almost always overlooked when you try to help a veteran that veterans often don't need the handout. They don't need even a house. They don't need one month's mortgage paid. They want the opportunity to change their life and have the freedom to do it on their own free will. And one of the reasons why I like Bunker Labs, because Bunker Labs to me is like the modern day American Legion, because they help veterans create opportunity. And if you truly want to change your veterans' lives, they don't need another nonprofit. They need the skills and resources to start a business that allows them to accept accountability and happiness for themselves without relying on someone else. And it's a very fine line. Like there are veterans that need that moment where they need that help. But we often need more is the ability to create opportunity than we do need something that keeps on coming as a handout. Yeah. Business ownership, entrepreneurship is entirely under leveraged as as a transition strategy. And and this isn't a new thing. If you go back to World War II, 12 and a half million veterans coming back from World War II, within seven years of the end of the war, almost 50% of those 12 and a half million World War II vets had started a small business somewhere in America. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And, and over time, historically, veterans have been over-indexed to business ownership. Today, you know, veterans represent about 6% of the U.S. population. Um, just over 14% of all business owners in this country are veterans. You know, there's always been this strong pull um, to business ownership from the the veterans community. And I think it's the reason being, it's a lot of the stuff that you just described. It is, you know, by definition, it's empowering. It gives you autonomy. You know, you can, you can um, 
craft a vocation, create a career for yourself. Gives you freedom, um, which is what you yeah. were fighting for. Like you yeah. want to oh. feel it on the inside, not like 100%. that you're slave to something on the outside. Yeah. hundred percent. And, and you know, it, it's not so intuitive, but you learn back to my example with the Marines, um, military service is a great training ground for becoming an entrepreneur because, you know, there's a classic definition an academic definition of, of entrepreneurship that goes like this. It's entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity in the face of inherently constrained resources. Think about your military service experience. That's sort of what it was, you know, and, um, you know, that, that, the, that training, the ability to figure that out and go out and do it in the face of lots of people telling you you can't, um, in the face of resource constraints, you know, other challenges, veterans just go out there and do it. Um, and, and that's, that's 50% of what business ownership is. I want to go on one more quick topic here before we wrap up. Uh, I just learned this this year, but there was an idea that we were talking about when I was talking with, I believe, Dr. Pamela Hall about PTSD. And we were trying to figure out what went right before, like in World War One, World War Two, where almost like PTSD and trauma was almost more prolific. And she actually said, we got to go back further to like American Indians when they would go off to war, that they would go off to war and fight their neighboring tribe to protect the tribe. And they would come back. And the entire tribe would have a shared experience of hearing what it was like for those warriors to go fight that war. And we've often like the crux of what veterans have to go through is we're told to go back to normal and to turn off the shared experience that we had in military and that we can't bring that to the table. Or if we do, it's almost too much baggage or it's too heavy. So I'm wondering, do you have a program or even opportunities in the, in the Institute to share experiences so that like the community of civilians as well as military kind of shares it together. Yeah. So, so I, I've heard this, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the story taking this back to the to native American tradition. And, you know, I, I will tell you, you just teed up, you know, my number one, um, issue in soapbox as a, as a veteran advocate and somebody who's been working in this space a long time. Um, and it, it, for some, it's very provocative, but I think the worst thing that, that has happened um, as it relates to um, health and well-being of our veterans community is the all-volunteer military. Um, I, I believe that 20 years of war, we've demonstrated that the future of the all-volunteer military um, is at risk and maybe should be at risk. And, and I'll tell you why as it relates to your question. Um, never in our history have we went to war as a country where the costs and consequences of war have been shouldered by only a tiny minority of our population. If you look at, because um, you know the all volunteer force is a new invention. You know it was after Vietnam, 1973. Up to that point, every war we fought impacted every American family, and that that idea of the shared experience it truly was shared. Because even if you didn't serve in uniform yourself, you had an experience of being impacted by you know, the, 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 the war that our country had committed to, you know, I, I tell, uh, I did a Ted talk a few years ago. This was really driven home to me. Um, sometimes I learn things at the, at the, the oddest moments. And, um, I was, that's when life flying, teaches you the most important yeah, lessons. I, I was actually flying home, um, a few years ago from a, a business trip. I was actually, um, um, at a, at a conference related to, to veteran issues. And, um, I boarded this airplane. I was, I forget where I was flying to, but I think it was, I was flying out of Minneapolis and boarded this airplane. Two young soldiers got on the airplane 
and um, they were in uniform. And, you know, it's one of those deals where the captain came over the PA system and asked everybody on the plane to recognize these two soldiers and everybody clapped. And, um, you know, there's a woman sitting next to me and, that just made this big show of, of clapping for these, these two young soldiers, you know, so much so that I thought it was more about her maybe than it was about those, those, those two soldiers. And, you know, I hate talking to people on airplanes, but I was also annoyed and grumpy at this point. And, and I'm a social scientist by training. So I decided I was going to talk to this woman and I, I introduced myself and, you know, I told her I was a veteran and, you know, and we got into this conversation and she just told me all these things, you know, she, you know, she's in an airport, sees the soldier, she'll buy him a cup of coffee, things like that. And, but then I started sharing with her, you know, some data, some, some of the challenges that, that are represented in the veterans community. And, you know, I, I told her at the time, you know, this was several years ago, unemployment rate for our youngest veterans in this country was through the roof and, um, you know, homelessness challenges. And then I told her about, I talked to her about suicide and I talked to her, you know, that um, depending on which data set you use, you know, somewhere every 80 minutes in this country, another veteran is, is taking their own life. And, and at this point she became very annoyed with me and, and she said, none of this can be true. You know, didn't you see us clap for these soldiers on the plane? You know, America su supports its veterans. And, and um, then she was done with me. She popped on some headphones and that was the end. And, but, but that's not the insightful part of the country. Unbeknownst to me on the other side of the aisle, um, there, was a, there was a young guy listening to this whole conversation and he tapped me on the shoulder, you know, introduced himself. He was actually a Marine, Marine Corps veteran. He'd been out for six months. His name was Tim. And, um, you know, he, he, we started talking. He said, thank you for, you know, the conversation I have with that one. But, but then he started rattling off all these things that, you know, he had a plan too. He was going to go, he was going to go to college. He, he lasted um, about three months on, on a college campus. Didn't feel like he fit in, didn't feel like he belonged, um, you know, hadn't been able to find a job. Um, he was actually on his way to a different VA because the VA locally couldn't figure out how to stop the ringing in his ears. And, you know, he can't get, he gets two hours of sleep and truth be told, I've been doing this work long enough. I heard all that stuff, but then the very next thing he said, you know, it was like a gut punch for me. He said, Mike, worse than all of that stuff, since I've been home, I feel anonymous. And, you know, if, if you think about that, um, you know, back to your original, what started all this about, you know, the shared experience. Um, we have been at war for 20 years where the majority, overwhelming majority of Americans have not shared in that experience any, in any way. Any so it's been very much the live their life. They can pursue their life. Yeah. There has been no consequence. There has been no cost. And that, in my view, um, is, is one of the most direct and in your face reasons why, you know, maybe um, the, the, you know, some of the mental health challenges that, that, that we see in the veterans community, you know, it's about, it's about being connected. You know, we have isolated our, you know, to, to back to your native American um, comparison, we have isolated our warriors from the rest of society. We think them, but then really, that's where the support really ends. And yeah. I've, I always tell everybody when they thank me for my service, don't thank me for my service. Tell me, welcome home. Yeah. Acknowledge that I'm here. Yeah. Ask me a question or two about I've what it always was like. like. Forrest Gump yeah. really taught us how to, to handle veterans, but no one really noticed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just sit on 
a park bench. I One of my very first speeches I gave, and I, I can't even believe I put myself in this position to do it, but I, I did it and it happened and it worked out. But I asked the principal at my kid's elementary school, hey, you need anybody to speak for the Veterans Day program that they're putting on? And I had like never been in front of anybody, really. And here I am going in front of kindergarten and third graders. And I was like, what the hell am I going to say to these kids that's going to have any impact? And then yeah. it hit me. They have these buddy benches in the playground. And I told the story. I was like, all over America, there's veterans sitting on the buddy bench waiting for someone to sit down and hear what they're going through. Yeah. And you can be that rainbow that comes after the storm to their storm. And I, I pretty much all that's all we really need to understand is a veteran's got a storm. You can be the rainbow by literally just sharing in whatever that experience is. And yeah. you can help him feel not anonymous. And that buddy bench example just kind of solidifies what you're talking about. Yeah. There's people on those buddy benches waiting to be had a conversation with. And if you really want to change a veteran's life, make them be heard. And yeah, I agree. It'll change how they see it. Absolutely. I, absolutely. Well, thanks. This was fun. Well, Michael, I got one last question because you oh, hinted at this it. amazing tool for concierge to be able to find resources. So if people want to get in touch with this essentially like veteran Google service, that sounds like yeah. for lack of a better term, uh, where's the place to go? All, all they have to do is Google Institute for Veterans and Military Families. And, and you will end up um, on, a, on a, a website where all of these resources are explained, how to access them, how to leverage them for your transition, et cetera. So simple as that. Well, awesome. I'll put a link for the show notes down there as well. Mike, I can't tell you, I, I even got goosebumps when you were talking about that Marine on the airplane, because I've had so many conversations where I'm talking to one person and then actually happened a couple of years ago. I was talking to one college student from Milwaukee and behind me was a guy that works at a homeless veteran here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And he was just listening yeah. the entire time. And I was like, whoa, like you yeah. think you're talking to one person, but you don't really think about who's listening or who needs to hear it. And damn, if that's not how, what we need to do more of. And I, yeah. I talk about friendships and conversations all the time on this podcast because that's really how you can change the world, but you never really never know until you say hello. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, again, thank you very much, Ben, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really hope that hits you right where you needed to give you the inspiration to go bigger, to go into the world and understand how important it is for veterans to understand if entrepreneurship is the right path. The conversations are almost always related around the GI Bill and all these other things that veterans can do out in the civilian world. But entrepreneurship isn't even something that the DOD recognizes. A lot of the entrepreneurship work is through nonprofits like Bunker Labs and all these different companies out there helping veterans create businesses to thrive after transition. So my big takeaway of this episode really comes down to, I loved the moment where Dr. Mike Haney talks about how he created this idea. And it was almost, he didn't know how not to fail. And he was almost too stubborn to think that he couldn't do it. That was a feeling that I did not have. I did not have an idea that I was just too stubborn. To me, it was anything, I was always fighting this idea of going out in the world and proving, like, who am I to even have this idea? If you've been listening to the podcast, you know a common thought in my head traditionally has been, guys like you do not do things like that. And hearing Dr. Mike Haney's answer to that question really helped me understand maybe what I was missing in that transition is just a stubbornness and applying even the military stubbornness that we often maybe turn off when we enter the civilian world because we're told to. But really, as an entrepreneur, it's that stubbornness that almost gets us going. 
And I loved also being a Marine that he talked about the Marines make almost the best entrepreneurs because we have that ability to do more with less. And as an entrepreneur, I can tell this from my own life, you have to have a grit and a faith to keep going, even when the odds in the universe seem like these are signals to stop. These are actually just how it works, that you just have to keep going and that the world isn't going to give you exactly what you want on day one. But as an entrepreneur, when you believe you have an idea, you run towards it, great things happen. So I hope this episode inspired maybe you to explore entrepreneurship in your own life. If you would like to check out the resources for Syracuse University, the IVMF, there's a link in the show notes to go ahead and over for them. Guys, this episode was an amazing put together. I hope it impacted you. Have an amazing week, and I'll be back again with you guys on Friday.